0: From the EPR Creation Studio, this is Jason Staples bringing you the Unconquered Podcast. As always, this podcast brought to you by EPR Creations, bringing the best of website development and internet marketing for an affordable price. And even if you don't need anything in that area of service right now, you still should go over to ShowTheSafeties.com, sign the petition for better viewing angles that allow us to see the passing game on television. ESPN really needs to make this change. Hey, the Mannings got him to do it a little bit on... Uh, Monday Night Football, hopefully we can make that a trend across the board. This is going to be a uh, coming out of the bye week question and answer episode, or question and response, really. In certain cases, I don't necessarily have answers, but I do have responses. So we're going to go ahead and and do that, looking at a number of questions that have come in from Patreon, from uh, email, from social media, all sorts of things. Lots of things to get to here. Of course, the questions that come in through Patreon get uh, priority. Let's start with the first one from over there from Jamie Street. Had some uh, some really good questions here having to do with some position changes. So he said, I know you're definitely all in on Amari Gaynor being closer to the line of scrimmage, and I couldn't agree more. What do you think about the following possible position changes? Travis J to wide receiver. No brainer if you ask me. Maybe the best ball skills on the team. DJ Lundy to Keir Thomas's defensive end position with some added mass. And Jordan Young to safety, a la Ehrman Lane. The kid seems to p- pursue the ball well on their punt and kick coverage units when he's in there. Any others you've kicked around? Man, I I love this. Th- this is such a good question, and it it brings up a few things that I think uh, could be helpful moving forward. And yes, I, I first of all, I do think that Amari Gaynor is better when he's moving forward, when he's near the line of scrimmage. Many of you have heard me talk about this. More than once over the past uh, three years, in each of those years, that I think he, even back when he was recruited, I think he, I I pegged him as an edge, as a guy that would be better as a, as an edge rusher, as a situational edge rusher, if he wasn't able to put the mass on, but he's at 237 pounds that listed at this point, look, if you can get him to 245, 250, I think he becomes a guy that you really strongly consider putting into the Jermaine Johnson type role next year. And maybe he can't do that full time, but he becomes a guy that you can you can have in that role. Now, as far as your suggestions, the first one that sticks out to me is the DJ Lundy to Fox position, you know, taking over for Keir Thomas after this year. That, you know, initially you look at it and you go, well, he's six one. I mean, can he really play on the edge? I mean, just, you know, kind of a little bit short for that. Not ideal. And then you look at it and you go, but Keir Thomas is only six two. And Lundy's 255 pounds, and the thing that we've talked about so far on the show this year is when you watch him, he is a target at the mic position at 255 pounds. He's just too big to play that position in today's game. Too heavy. He really needs to dr- either drop weight to be able to play that position, to be able to run better. And I don't know that he's going to run a whole lot better if you drop that weight, because he doesn't have a bunch of bad weight. Or... You look at the difference in size, he's 255 right now, and I think he's 255, like, trying to keep that off. You let him add another 10 pounds, and he's really close to the same size as Keir Thomas right now, who's 270. He adds 15 pounds, which he probably could do pretty easily, given his body composition and his overall, uh, overall build. But you, you get him to 265, and he's basically the same build as Keir Thomas in that spot. And as a former high school wrestler, which again, tells you that he's a guy that's had to cut weight and do all of this stuff before as a former high school wrestler, he's going to have a lot of the hand fighting skills and a lot of those in tight skills that you want on that edge. So I think it's a, a reasonable thing to really strongly consider coming into the, going into next year where they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do on the edge. Now, some of the guys that they've got coming in, potentially hopefully if you look at some of the guys that are that they're recruiting hard on the edge that might they might obviate that move a little bit in that you know Kelly uh Marvin Jones Jr some of these guys would come in and and play right away and you know, maybe you don't feel like you need to add another body to the edge as much especially since you still have some serious depth problems at linebacker which if they're not if they don't find some additional guys in the in the portal or in recruiting, they're going to still have some issues at linebacker going into next year. That might be the thing that keeps you from making that move. All that said, you can't just rely on freshmen to to make to make the difference on the edge. I mean, even though even even though those guys are really talented, you're going to need to have a veteran presence there, particularly on first down and and you know neutral rundowns. And I do wonder whether Lundy would be the kind of guy that might, with that wrestling background, be a little bit better in that kind of role. So, yeah, I think that's something that should very, very seriously be considered going into next year. That's, that's, that's for sure. Travis J to wide receiver. This is actually a suggestion that I made last year. I, I thought that given the composition of the roster, and I talked about this after the spring, if I, if I recall correctly, I know I talked about it last fall and uh, coming out of the spring my my, criti- my critique my concern was where are they going to get offense from when they just they don't have a, they don't have playmakers where are the wide receivers that change the scoreboard you don't have guys that when they get they get the ball in their hands they just look like they're about to make about to make a play every time and you got one of those guys in Travis J and to me he's best when he has the ball in his hands so And and as you mentioned, he might have the best ball skills on the team. It's possible he does. So, you know, that one, again, seems to me to be a pretty that would have been one that I would have thought about making this year because of the lack of wide receiver talent. Now, next year, that might not be the case next year. Again, it's going to I think a lot of these kinds of position changes are going to be determined somewhat. Or whether they're a good idea are determined somewhat by who else is on the team. Who else do you have at those spots? And if the wide receiver room looks like it does right now, then yeah, I think Travis Jade, a wide receiver, with some of the defensive backs that you might be adding next year who can actually play and cover, maybe you do move that, make that move. I, I think that that's something you consider. If you upgrade your receiver room in the portal and also, you know, maybe Destin Hill shows up on campus. Maybe you add a couple other stud players that, that, that can do some things and can change the scoreboard at the wide receiver position. Then maybe you don't make that move. Maybe you feel like you can get more out of him at corner, maybe, but to me, I mean, I, I especially thought that at safety, he was kind of wasted there. Whereas at at wide receiver. So the old rule, and Jimbo used to talk about this, is that you put your best athletes on defense with the exception of the guys that change the scoreboard. Guys that can change the scoreboard in a hurry, those are guys you put on offense. So you can have great athletes and you want your your defense to be your great athletes, but then you have your, put the ball in this guy's hand and he's gonna ch- he's going to change the scoreboard, that guy you have to have on offense. So to me, Travis Jay is one of those guys where he he might be in that latter category. And certainly when you compare him at safety to what he could do on offense, I think you you have to consider what, what the benefit is at safety versus, and I think on offense, he's a much more valuable player. Now, at corner, he's been better, and he's offered them some stability on the boundary when he's been healthy. So that makes that a tougher thing because a, a dominant corner – changes the calculus massively. So that's one that I would consider, but is not a sure thing to me. Now, Jordan Young to safety at this stage, I, again, I kind of like that move simply because of the length and the unusual athleticism that he has. And if he's not getting it done at wide receiver, and frankly, with the current situation in the wide receiver room and what's going on at the position this year if he's not getting run right now I'm not sure when he's going to get run at wide receiver at Florida State I think a move to safety while he's still young and can can get there might might be worth it I mean you f- you forget I mean he was recruited a while ago but he's still only a redshirt sophomore and you put him at safety and suddenly you've got another guy that can run and has length and and all of those things so again a viable situation a viable position change that I think is, is worth considering. I, I think all of those are viable, uh, viable types of things to consider. Now, some other ones that I would look at, I would consider Jarvis Brownlee, especially moving into next year, Jarvis Brownlee, maybe moving back to, to safety possibly. Uh, I, I actually liked Renardo green at corner better than I like him at safety I'm not sure that he really has a fit in what they're doing as much at this point, but once he gets healthy, we'll see. Um, another guy that I, I think would benefit massively from a position change is Quayshon Fuller, who I think is really, he's, he's costing himself money by dropping the weight and trying to play outside instead of just admitting to himself and to everybody else that he really is a natural three technique at his body and that he should be playing at about 290, 295. And at his quickness, he'd be a difference maker inside. Whereas on the outside, at the Fox position, eh, you know, he's a player, you know, he's a guy. I think if he bulks up and puts some weight on, he could be a legit player. He could be a dude inside. So Quayshawn Fuller is one of the first guys that I would consider making a move. I mean, again, I think this defense needs to get more athletic and get get faster next year. So moving the mic down to Fox and moving the Fox inside to the three technique and continuing to add depth there is exactly the sort of thing that I think needs to happen as they, uh, as they move forward in terms of other ones, I can't think of any others that would be an obvious shift, an obvious change to say, okay, yeah, that guy should, should make, make a switch from one, one spot to another, because they've already made a few of those Shifts where I I thought they would be useful for for example Akeem Dent going to free safety I think that's still a good change even though he's been out and has not uh, has not been playing as much uh, I think Jadarius Green McKnight to to the outside backer is a is a good move I think there's a number of those that they have made I just think that they can do some more with again getting Gainer more on the, in an edge roll moving Quayshon Fuller inside maybe moving. Lundy down to the Fox, depending again on what your situation is with depth and all of that at linebacker, I mean does Emmett Rice get another year? maybe he does, and if he comes back then next year you you feel better about Deloach and Rice as backers, and maybe Lundy becomes a a backup thumper, so maybe you choose not to move him, but I think again, you really consider that move you you think about where where you're most comfortable uh so I think those are the ones that that I would I would be most interested in and and I think you you pegged several of them really well there. It's a really good uh really good few suggestions to consider. So the next bunch of questions, well actually before the next bunch of questions, another thing that you ought to consider if you are in the greater Jacksonville area and you have any real estate needs is to talk to Luis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, who is the best in the business out there. Nobody's going to make any home look better. Than he does with professional grade photography and smooth professional walk through video your your house your property is going to look better online for prospective buyers than any other property could. Lewis is the best in the business. give him a holler if you need to buy or sell any real estate in the greater Jacksonville area now, the next bunch of questions uh kind of go with this, and actually i I just noticed. The next bunch of questions. This this one is actually from Brian Leininger. What do you think about playing Jarvis Brownley at strong safety rather than corner? It seems like he's good within the first eight yards, then get then gets beat after eight yards. I, I actually would consider Brownley at at the safety position. I don't think he's so the way that they do it. The strong safety is really the free safety for them, uh, and then you've got the boundary safety, who's more of a bigger guy generally, in the way that they uh, that they set things up. But for that free safety role, I think Brownlee is an interesting kind of prospect. The problem there is exact is the second part of what you're saying. It seems like he's good within the first eight yards, then gets gets beat after eight yards. The problem with the safety position for that kind of that kind of skill set is the safety position is never really playing in the first eight yards. So you're basically asking a guy to play a lot more in space and off the ball more so. And he's really best when he's been able to get his hands on guys, which is, I think, why they have him at corner rather than safety. And so even though I've, I mean, in the prior segment, I just talked about Brownlee to safety as a as a consideration that I've had. I think that's why they've chosen to keep him where he's at. Now, as hard a worker as he is, and and all of those other things, you do wonder what his future is in terms of in the defensive backfield, as they bring in more talent at that corner position, because what he really lacks is that that catch up speed that some of these guys that they that they're bringing in, and one guy that's on the roster who just qu- hasn't quite put it all together, do have, and that's something that you know once you get those guys in that position, maybe his reps just go down at the corner position, and then you have to start finding other places to, to for him to potentially contribute. But again, another realistic consideration. So uh, the next question is related to a lot of what we've been talking about so far, and that has to do with proper position for guys. And this one has to do with Travis Hunter. So the question says, can you talk about Travis Hunter? Do you think he could have the greatest impact at Florida State being a full-time wide receiver or defensive back. It sounds like he's going to start at corner and then play some wide receiver also. And this is a really good question. So the problem with somebody like Hunter is that he is elite elite at both spots and you really would want him at both at either spot. He's going to make a huge impact. Now, I've wondered this myself um, and I think this is one of those things that to some extent you can't really know until he's on campus because a a lockdown corner is one of the two or three most valuable things you can have on a defense. If you can just give a guy a one-on-one assignment and know that he's going to win that one-on-one, if you know that your corner can't get run by, that changes the calculus for you as a defensive coordinator. You, just, you, you have a completely different approach when you can say, all right, X that guy out, he's gone, now let's go 10-on-10 10 10 over here. That's a different... A different thing. And he might be able to do that because he has rare suddenness and speed and acceleration and fluidity at the corner position for his size. I mean, you're looking at a guy that's that's six foot plus, uh, you know, what, maybe a legit six, six, one and a half with some length. I mean, a guy that that moves like he's a much smaller guy with that kind of with that kind of size. Those guys are at a premium. I mean, you're talking about a Jalen Ramsey type corner prospect. I mean, that is, um, that is, if you can have a Jalen Ramsey at corner, then you want a Jalen Ramsey at corner. The concern for me at the corner position is that he's like 165 pounds. I mean, he's a small guy in terms of build. He's slight. And you can see that when he's out there, when he's been out there with a few other major prospects, you can see he's not big. And at the corner position, he's going to have to come up and run support. He's going to be asked to do more there where that frame size is going to matter. And that's the thing with with Ramsey, is not only did you have all of those corner skills, but Ramsey's 210 pounds. Now he's like 215. So not only with that kind of size and length and burst and all of that, but you've got to have a little bit more you gotta have some size to play corner, especially in today's game where you're gonna get blocked and you're gonna have to make a lot of tackles on the edge. That's my concern, is is there. Now the question is, can he get to say 180 pounds, 185 pounds right away? If as a true freshman, he's six one, say 185 pounds, and hasn't lost any of the bursts or anything like that then you'd say okay probably most value at that point is at the corner position while playing some offense kind of moving over to the offensive side i'm not sure that that's necessarily the case if he's 175 pounds or 170 pounds at that size and at that height and weight i think actually he probably has the most impact early immediately as a wide receiver because as soon as you get the ball in this guy's hands it's it's just filthy his acceleration his burst is so rare so and, and and at receiver you can protect yourself quite a bit more so that's where I think a little bit depends on on how well does he fill out how well does his body size move up I think in the long haul if you want to talk about two years from now as a sophomore as a junior and going into the pros where is his biggest impact I think that's at that corner because if you have a 6'1 guy with his movement skills, there just aren't many of those guys. There's a lot of 6'1 wide receivers who can accelerate and do a lot of things. Maybe not none of them quite as well as Travis Hunter, but his but but the difference between him and other elite receivers, I think, is smaller than the difference between his ceiling as a defensive back, as a corner, compared to the ceiling of other defensive backs, just because of the traits with the length and the height. So all that said. It really depends on what you're looking at. Are you looking at first-year impact, or are you looking at overall? And I think you've got to be looking at overall, at which point you say you start him at defensive back, you start him at corner, you give him reps at, at wide receiver to give him some opportunities to get his hands on the football. But I think long-term, his value is at the corner position, especially once he gets into like the 190-pound range. Then you're looking at a top-five draft pick type guy. And so that's where I think the, the most value lies. Next question. During the Syracuse game, we kept running some bubble screens to the short side of the field. Don't you want to run that on the far side of the field so you have more space for your playmakers? Yes and no. So it depends a little bit on what you're what you're doing and it also depends on how teams handle formation into the boundary. So, formation into the boundary, formation to the short side uh different teams defend it differently. So some teams say, okay, well, we're going to use that boundary as an extra defender. And so we're not actually going to rotate the extra guy fully over there, which gives you a little more space in terms of, comparatively speaking, where you're going to get that guy over there just a little later than he would be if he's playing over over the player. So that can change the, the the overall calculus there. It's the same reason that sometimes it's better to run a toss play into the boundary as opposed to a toss play... Uh, to the wide side of the field where you'd naturally say, well, you know, you've got more space out there. Yeah. But the defense also knows that. And so they adjust their, their defensive formations so that they take away that space. So if they do that enough, then actually you have the advantage on the boundary. The other thing, the other two factors that are in play here have to do with the quarterback's arm. How quickly can the quarterback get the ball out there? So, you know, Larry Fedora used, used to tell, he probably does still tell the story. He talks about how, uh, I think when he was at, uh, was he at Southern Miss? Um, he had a quarterback who had a sort of a pea shooter for an arm, didn't, wasn't able to make a whole lot of throws down the field. So they ran about 85% of their offense when they charted it at the end of the year, about 85% of their offense was run into the boundary. He made all the throws to the short side of the field because those are the throws that he could make. And if you've got a quarterback who is not quite as accurate or maybe doesn't have as strong of an arm, can be easier for that guy to get it out quickly and get the ball on the guy for the screen to the boundary to give your guy better a better chance than throwing to the to the field where it's a much longer throw. So that can change things as well. And the other thing has to do with what the purpose of the screen game is. So are you trying to hit a big play here? Is it, is this part of your big play package? Uh, Where you're running, say, a wide receiver screen or, you know, just a standard bubble, or are you just basically using this as an extension of your running game? And are you just trying to get, say, three, four yards at a pop just outside the box, which is what Florida State was doing? And at that point, sometimes it's better to go into the boundary, both because the ball gets out there quicker And also because you can put your bigger players there. Let's say you got a six, three wide receiver and then a tight end that are both lined up wide. And then you put the running back back there. Then basically you're just running ISO. You're not trying to get wide. You're not trying to do anything out there. You're just trying to use a double team block to work its way up to the next level. And then you've got lead blockers for the, for the running back or whoever is going to be getting that bubble and he's heading up up the field. So that's what they were doing against Syracuse. They were basically trying to bully Syracuse's undersized defensive backs and use Syracuse's focus on keeping players in the box, which still leaves you sort of half a man short on the boundary against them and use that as a constraint to basically produce four, five, six yard chunks in that extended running game. So that's why they did that. I'm not a big fan of doing, doing everything to the boundary all the time, but in that game, I thought it was actually, it was fine. I think that made sense because of what they were trying to do. They're not trying to get space. They're just trying not to do everything in the box where they were getting their butts kicked on, on the, uh, on the offensive line more often than not. Next question. <laughs> and actually several of these uh, go together here. So I'm just going to read them kind of one at a time, I guess, and I'll address them as they, as they come. Are you surprised that the defense is playing this poorly? That's an interesting question. Because it... There are multiple levels to that question. So... When I think about my expectations coming into the season, I didn't think the defensive line would be as good as they have been. So I think that part of the Florida State defense has been better than I expected. I thought the linebackers would be a major weakness, and they have been a major weakness. Though, actually, last couple weeks, they've been less so. They've found some ways to hide some of that in in moving some guys around and and some of what they've done schematically and just not having as many busts. And then I thought the secondary overall And this is like the third year in a row, fourth year in a row, where the secondary has underperformed my expectations. So then you think about what they've, about the opponents that they've played, and once you've adjusted for opponent, you look at, say, the uh, SP plus ratings, defensively, they're 67th, which I think is, yeah, that is lower than I expected, but not like an order of magnitude lower than I expected. On the year, especially when you consider some of the injuries that they've had and some of the other issues that they've had defensively that, you know, some of the guys that I thought would potentially be the biggest assets that they've that they would have coming into the year. weren't haven't always been there. Uh, You know, Travis Jay has missed time and has also not been quite as consistent as expected. Akeem Dent has now missed a good amount of time and is now a backup. Uh, you get on the list and, you know, in particular in the secondary, there's been some, some shifting. So yeah, that's worse than I expected, but like I said, not orders of magnitude worse. And when I look at the results on the schedule, gave up 41, 38 in, in regulation to Notre Dame, gave up 20 to Jacksonville state and obviously six on that final play. I mean, that's not terrible. And then you've got 35 to Wake Forest with six turnovers, 31 to Louisville, 30 to Syracuse, not ideal, and then 25 at North Carolina, which is okay. So, I mean, actually, even though the defense hasn't been very good so far this season, I I think how bad they've been is maybe a little bit overblown, to be totally honest. Now, in terms of the the talent level on either side of the ball, the offense has very, very little talent. The defense does have some players to work with. I mean, you look up, you you look just up front, Keir Thomas, Fabian Lovett, Robert Cooper, Jer- uh, Jermaine Johnson, that starting four on the defensive line, that, that group's legit. Those guys can play. That's a top shelf ACC defensive line. That's a top shelf, I mean, that's, above the average sec defensive line that's that's a good a good group so you can kind of build from that they've got strength there whereas on the offensive side they really haven't had a whole lot of strengths to be able to build from other than really the the running backs and now moving forward i think you could actually maybe toss if they can stay healthy you could toss the offensive line up front as something you can actually build from as a strength on this offense which sounds nuts but Again, the starting five group that they have, when those guys are actually all healthy and together, they're not bad. So, yeah, that's uh, defensively, there's some strengths to to build from. But like I said, I, I think it's been worse than than I expected overall, but not by a bunch. Uh, just given some of the other issues that they've had and some of the limitations that they've got personnel wise. The biggest thing I would like to see is for them to get some things cleaned up on in the secondary. And if they can get the back seven cleaned up, particularly in the back four, back five, then I think this defense could finish the year better than they started it. And could finish, you know, say in the top 40 or 50 defenses nationwide, at which point they would basically be in the area that I kind of expected coming into the year, despite a a start that's a little bit worse than I, I thought they'd have. So, answer to that is sort of a qualified yes, but I again, I don't think they've been quite as bad as the perception to this point, at least relative to expectations or reasonable expectations. So, yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing. And I think they've been getting better. I think there's been progress. I mean, you look at the last couple of weeks, and I don't just think it's been due to playing bad offenses. I think there's been some strides made on the defensive side, part of which have been the result of them figuring out some things in terms of personnel. I mean, Jamie Robinson basically moving to the safety spot, Sidney Williams taking over the other safety spot, and then Kevin Knowles becoming the full-time nickel, basically. I think that has really helped shore up the back end to where those guys actually are more dependable on the back end than they've had. And I think there's been some significant noticeable improvement with those guys' on the field compared to what they had previously. And uh, and I'm curious to see what things look like as they move forward with those guys getting the bulk of the reps there, if they can stay healthy. And again, Jerry and Jones two at corner as he's gotten healthier, has has looked better. So you just you, you wonder whether or not some of the problems that they've had actually are going to show they're going to show some significant improvement in the back half of the year and uh, at which point they may not end up actually all that disappointing relative to expectations. So that's a a worthwhile thing to, to think about. And the next question was tacked onto this, and that is, if there is a change at defensive coordinator after this season, who are some of the top coordinators you would recommend? A defensive coordinator that gets more out of its players that have less talent, a good fit for Florida State, and if you could pay your defensive coordinator around $1.5 million a year, could Florida State attract a top defensive coordinator? Who, boy, that's a good question. I'm going to have to think about that. So my first choice, I mean, the first guy on my list is, I think, a pretty obvious one and would probably be the first guy on just about anybody's list and was the first guy on Mike Norvell's list the last time he wanted to make this hire, and that's Dan Lanning from from Georgia. Norvell has obviously coached with him before. He was Norvell's defensive coordinator at Memphis in one of their most successful seasons, and then went from Memphis to Georgia and has had obviously a ton of success there under Kirby Smart. I think he gives you kind of the best of all worlds in that he's coached under Norvell, liked working with Norvell, and you know they had a lot of success together and also has helped put together the most dominant defense we've seen in quite a while. Along with Kirby Smart, you know, comes out of the Saban tree in that regard, also has some uh, Elko influence and some of those other things. So, I mean, he's kind of the best of all worlds here if you can get him. But that ties to the other part of this question is, okay, who can you get to Florida State if you can pay the defensive coordinator around one and a half million a year? Could FSU attract a top defensive coordinator? I think they could attract a top type defensive coordinator with that money. But could they get Lanning? Not if Georgia wants him. Not if Georgia wants to keep him, I don't think. Because Georgia, I think especially after the year that they're having, could could certainly match that. The question is, and I think what you'd be banking on, is whether or not Georgia would just say, mm, you know, that's really steep money, considering we've got Will Muschamp on staff as an analyst right now. There's already co-coordinator Glenn Schumann here who's coordinating together with Lanning, and obviously this is Kirby's defense. So, you know, that's just overpaying a lot for a young, promising defensive coordinator who, you know, we don't really need as much as they do. To me, if it comes down to that, that's my first call, and I make Georgia decide whether or not they want to overpay for a guy that may not be as, as important for their operation, or certainly isn't as important for their operation as he would be to Florida States. And I think you basically bank on Georgia just saying, yeah, we, we we're not going to match that because, and then hope that Lanning is willing to take the job with the big pay bump, knowing that it's a less secure job than Georgia, given that Kirby smart's not going anywhere anytime soon. And you can kind of coach in, until he potentially has an opportunity to big job on the flip side. the, Upside to this is that if Florida State brings in the kind of talent that they're bringing in in this next recruiting class and they're able to basically pitch this as this is going to be your defense, he might be looking at this going, I could potentially get in there, flip that defense in two or three years, and suddenly it's my credit. Like, I get all the credit. So to me, the, the list really starts with Lanning because you can, you can basically, you you basically want to make him say no, and you want to make Georgia match because there's a possibility that Georgia doesn't think that they, that they need to match in order to sustain what they have. And there's a possibility that if they don't match that he says, yeah, you know, there's a, there's enough potential benefits for me to be able to run my own defense and turn that around down there. That's going to really put my launch my stock through the roof. And is he willing to bet on himself and bet on some of the young talent that Florida state would be bringing in. And also knowing that he knows that and knows Norvell as a head coach and has a lot of respect for him and knows that uh, Norvell is about as likely as anybody to get things flipped around. So is he willing to take that bet on himself? That to me, that's where I would start. And if you can get him to say yes, yes, That ends your list. (laughs) It's easy. But like I said, that's by no means a guarantee, even at 1.5 million. I I don't think you can guarantee that you're going to be able to pull him, but I think you make him say no. Another guy that I would actually look at that might be available is Todd Orlando, who's the defensive coordinator at USC. And USC obviously is making a head coaching change. And so it's possible that Orlando wouldn't necessarily be in the next coach's plans, and even if he was potentially in the next coach's plans, you kind of pull on the possibility that he might want to uh, to move. But Orlando is a guy; he was with uh, he was with Texas for a while with with Herman. Didn't have the most success there. He was at uh, at Houston as well, but I think he's a really good coordinator. I think he's uh, in the past shown himself to be a really good, in particular, big game defensive coordinator. He's he's typically had plans, great plans for big games. I mean, Florida state found that out when they played Houston in the bowl game, he had a great scheme, a great setup for, for what they had there. I think Orlando is a guy that I would potentially have on my list. Then another guy to, to really consider is, uh, is there's a, there's a a coach at Alabama who's had, he's got defensive coordinator experience. He's working with the Alabama safeties. He's their associate defensive coordinator already. You know, you never know if he, he would want to return, but Charles Kelly, who once coached at Florida State. No, OK, I'm kidding. That that wouldn't wouldn't go over very well. But again, it you know, does make us remember that sometimes the guys that were criticized in the past heavily, maybe, uh, you know, the grass isn't always greener. But yeah, that one's that one's not really going to work. So moving back to a more serious list, another guy that I think really should be on the list is Zach Alley uh Louisiana Monroe's defensive coordinator. He's uh he he's a, a guy that is uh uh connected through Brent Brent Venables at Clemson, uh part of the uh the Clemson coaching tree. And uh only 28 years old, exactly the kind of guy that you could potentially potentially get. Uh another one that would be uh that would be in consideration, Austin Armstrong, guy from Southern Miss, also young guy. I think he's also 28 years old. Uh, very strong in terms of his record, wherever he's gone. So those would be two guys in terms of the younger, you wouldn't necessarily have to play them or to pay them quite as much. Uh, And you would be rolling the dice a little bit, kind of uh, Jeremy Pruitt style in that regard, but you would potentially be able to, uh, to get them. So, you know, I think you would have to interview them and, and get a sense of where they would be. But those are two guys that would potentially be on that list for me. Now there are, obviously other names that, that really belong on that list. And I'd have to think about it a little bit more and take a look through some of my notes from, from the past and all of this to think through it. But I mean, those are four names that I would definitely have right, right up front in terms of, of guys that I would consider. And like I said, I would, if it came down to it, I would offer Lanning right away and make him say no and make Georgia match and just see if, if that would actually, if that would actually happen. But again, this is all a bit premature because Florida State still has a defensive coordinator and we still have yet to see what's going to happen in the second half of the season. So we'll see. Final question is related to that last point. Plus, minus, or even the number of staff changes of three after this season on Norvell's staff. <sighs> Another one that I think is is tough. I would put that as minus. I would say bel- I would say fewer than three guys. Get changed out changed out after this season on norvell's staff uh though again that number could change i mean if they if they suddenly lose out, then I think that number goes higher than three because just I think there's gonna be enough pressure to make a few of those changes that 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 would be necessary, but you know if they if they finish like I think they might, then I don't think you're gonna see a full three changes. I think you'll see maybe one or two, but I'm not even I'm not sure about that, because, again, right now, the main thing that that Norvell and his staff know is that there really needs to be a some sense of continuity within the program. And that is a a, a top priority for what they're what they're looking to do. So that doesn't mean you can't make changes. And if changes need to be made, then you make those changes. But you. You have to be very careful and consider what changes you you actually do want to make in that case, so. Uh, I would say fewer than three at this point, uh, in, in, in the process. All right, move into the next set of questions here in this segment brought to you by Shenandoah Newsma of Keller Williams Realty in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. You can find her at shenrealestate.com. Tell her you heard about her from the Unconquered podcast. Next question. Is it likely that FSU gets to a bowl game? Well, I mean, I think the best way to take a look at that is to look at the FPI, for example. The FPI gives Florida State, and the FPI projects Florida State to finish at four and eight right now, and they give a zero percent chance of winning out. Looking at the at the at the numbers, they uh, there there's a, there's an outside chance, but they don't think it's likely that Florida State makes a bowl. So is it likely? Probably not. Is it possible? I think it's very possible. And I think it's maybe even more than possible that the FPI right now has slightly underrated Florida State such that the the odds are a little bit more in their favor than than the FPI might suggest. But it is good to take a look at that to kind of check what we, you know, that we aren't overreacting to some of the stuff that we're seeing because we did we have seen i mean you look at the game scores for Florida State on the year 46 against Notre Dame not bad 7 against Jacksonville State 31 at Wake Forest 21 against Louisville then 63 and 93 in the past two games so those those were by far the best games that Florida State has played on the season in terms of overall control of the game in terms of overall performance and efficiency by both on both sides of the ball plus special teams. It's not a coincidence that that also happens to coincide with getting healthy on the offensive line, having a healthier uh, Jordan Travis. That makes that makes you think that maybe there's a a better chance to uh, to carry that forward than what you would think just based on the, the whole body of work on the season. So is it possible that, that this Florida State team is just significantly improving and actually has a better chance than the numbers suggest? I think that's very possible. So at that point, the question is, what is your path to a bowl game? You obviously need six wins. So you got to win against UMass this week. OK, so that's that puts you at three. Then you're going to have to you're going to have to beat Boston College. Right. You're going to have to win against Boston College. That's probably your next best bet. And Miami, that takes you to five wins. So you're going to have to beat Boston College and Miami just to get to five wins. That's a tall order in itself because, I mean, the FPI, for example, has both of those teams as favorites against Florida State. After UMass, Florida State is not favored in another game for the remainder of the year. And then you're going to have to win one of Clemson, NC State, and Florida to make a bowl. I mean, that's kind of the way you have to think about this. You have to beat Clemson, NC State or Florida, at a minimum, to make a bowl. Is that likely? I I wouldn't say it was likely. Is it possible? I think it's more possible than it may seem. So then the next question is, and actually this is related to what I was just saying, can we beat one of NC State, Clemson, and Florida? Can we end up beating both BC and Miami? Well, here's the thing. If Clemson continues to play the way that they've played on offense, where they're struggling to score twenty points against anybody, then yeah, Florida State can beat that Clemson team. Would I pick them to beat them? Maybe. We'll see how how things go this week. We'll see how what Clemson looks like against Pittsburgh. We'll see you know some of the whether whether some of these things have been fixed, but probably not. But anytime you've got a team that's struggling to score more than twenty points, and you know Clemson's not what they were up front. To begin the year, I mean, Brzysz out. Uh, their other defensive tackle, whose name is escaping me, uh, is also out. So I mean, they're they're playing a lot of young guys now. They they do have Xavier Thomas on the edge, who's one of the best defensive ends that, that is on Florida State's schedule, if not the best. Certainly, one of the two or three most talented. So you're going to have trouble blocking him in certain respects. But again, it's not the trouble you'd have you thought you'd have blocking him at the beginning of the season due to injury. So if Florida State's offensive line is healthy going into Clemson, and Clemson is not going to have those guys up front, you got a shot. And actually, I think Clemson, out of those, those teams, might be your best shot to get a win. So you beat UMass, and you beat Clemson, and then you got to beat Miami and Boston College to, win, to, to uh, make a bowl. You got a real shot. And then, of course, you get a home game against an NC State team that's been up and down. They're better on both sides of the ball on on the on the line of scrimmage than Clemson though and and I mean, you look at their game against Clemson, that was not a fluke win they They dominated Clemson on the on on the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. So Florida state's going to have a hard time blocking NC State, and NC State's limiting the run and, and being able to do what they want to do against NC State is going to be difficult. But again, that's an inconsistent team. So can they beat NC State? Yes, can they beat Florida? Yes. LSU just beat Florida without about half its roster, about, I think it was eight starters or eight, eight key defensive players and a coach that was actually already that had already essentially been fired. So can Florida State beat that Florida team? Yes. Will they? Well, we'll see where Florida is in terms of, of mind space at the end of the year, but it's possible. I mean, here's, this is sort of a weird spot that Florida State's schedule does not get easier moving forward. Certainly, certainly not. But, and and, and again, they're not going to have after UMass a game that they're going to be favored in at this point in the season. But there's not a single game on that list that you look at and you go, yeah, they just can't win that game. Because you can see a path to winning against Clemson. You can see a path to winning against NC State. You can see a path to winning against Florida. I mean, where where is Florida going to be in terms of that locker room and all sorts of other things by the end of the year. I mean, they're about to get their brains beat in by by Georgia. They just lost to LSU. They've got some issues at, at you know, in terms of locker room and the at the quarterback position, all sorts of things, and those quarterbacks have been more than more than generous with throwing the football away, throwing the football to the other team. So you you don't play after you ask, you don't play a game that you're going to be favored in, but you also don't play a game that you can't win. So that puts things in a kind of an interesting spot. I'm very curious to see how this this season plays out in that respect, because I think it's possible. I think the the likelihood of making a bowl. Is better than, say, the FPI suggests, I think Florida State's more likely to finish something like five and seven than anything else. I think they'll either get one of I think essentially they're going to get two Somewhere out of Clemson, NC State, Miami, Boston College, and Georgia. I think they'll get two of those. The question is whether or not they can get three of them. If they can split that group, then they go to a bowl. I think they'll get two. I think it's possible that they get three. I, I wouldn't necessarily bet on it right now. Final question here in, in this set of questions is Do you try to get Chubba Purdy some, pa- uh, some packages in the next few games? Um, I think you try to get Pur- Purdy some some time in the in the uh, in the UMass game, second half of the UMass game. If you're up by 35 points, 40 points, whatever, I think you do try to get Purdy some time, and you just want to get him some time to be able to to get some live reps and move around and and throw with the lights on. Beyond that, I don't think you try to get him out in the field in any competitive game right now, just to just to get him reps. So no, I don't think you try to, to create some packages just to get him out there. No, I do not. Partly because I think your best shot right now is to have Jordan Travis do Jordan Travis stuff as much as possible. And partly because, again, you're, he hasn't shown you enough to show that he would be an upgrade in anything that he does over what Travis is doing right now. Does he, does he throw it a little better? Yeah, he throws it better, but he also is less reliable in decision-making right now so you just can't trust that. And every drive from here out in the season is going to be at a premium. So you don't you don't want to mess with it. The only way that you end up trying to get him more packages is if Travis goes down and you are and you're playing uh Mackenzie Milton, then I think you do try to get Chubba Purdy some packages because you've got to have a guy that can move around a little bit. And Purdy can do that. So as long as Travis is healthy, as long as Travis is the starter, and as long as Travis is playing, then no, I don't think you try to get Purdy any packages in the next few games. Okay, final question here of of this episode, and this one brought to you by Garage Makeovers, the best garage remodeling company in South Florida. Information in the show notes. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered podcast. This one's from Craig Wilkins and this one's in response to my, uh, my Kiffin answer, my discussion about Lane Kiffin and whether or not he would have been a a good hire for Florida state back when Florida state hired, uh, Willie Taggart basic. And again, my answer was a decided, no, uh, I would not want anywhere near Lane Kiffin as the head coach at Florida state. But anyway, uh, this one says jumping onto your Kiffin answer, same question, different guy. Mark Stoops. I know we all got caught up in a Mark Stoops. I know we all got caught up in a Bob Stoops chase before jumping to Willie, but I think there were reports where we interviewed Mark back then too. He's done a good job at Kentucky without tons of talent. He had FSU history, doesn't trend on Twitter for negative stuff. Is there a case that can be made that he would have been a really good hire even over someone like Norvell? So I think he certainly would have been a better hire than Willie Taggart. Um, I don't think he would have been a better hire than, say, Norvell the second time around. I think Norvell was a better hire than than Mark Stoops in that context. First time around, you could make a case for him over Norvell because Norvell did not have the track record at Memphis that basically got him hired the second time around. So you could make a case for Mark Mark Stoops the first time, but I still hold to the 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 guy that I would have hired that that I would have gone after. I would have gone after one of two guys. When they hired Willie Taggart, and this is what I said then. the guy that I would have hired probably above any other is Jeff Brom, current head coach at, at uh, Purdue. I think he's a really good football coach, and I think he is the kind of guy that if you put him at a Florida state or a USC or whatever, they would be dominant. Uh, and the other guy was was Matt Campbell. that was a that was a guy the, the current head coach at Iowa State that I would have I would have gone after hard at that time. Uh, and they did kick the tires on Matt Campbell the second time around with when they when they went with Norvell, though uh, Campbell was not willing to uh, to interview at the time that they wanted to make their decision. he wanted to play the season out before he even considered any other jobs it 's just a matter of principle for him in that case so the guy that the guy that I probably would have hired though and would have been number one on my list would have been would have been jeff Brom and uh, and I still think that would that had they hired Jeff Brom. When Jimbo Fisher left, I think you would probably still see a Florida State team in the top 20, probably top 10 right now, and they would be building. Uh, because, again, I think he's one of the best coaches in college football. And what he's able to do schematically, offensively, his ability to work with quarterbacks, oftentimes with limited skill sets and all of those different things, I think he would have found a way to uh, to make sure that Florida State didn't crater like they did under Willie Taggart. So that's the guy that I would have, I would have gone after. Uh, on that first time around it's what I said then it's what I'm still saying uh now again, Mark Stoops would have been a better a better hire Would he have been a really good hire as the question suggests <sighs> I think he's in the right place for for him at this stage uh i just again i I think he's a good coach. I don't think he's a great fit for for Florida state and partly again, I've talked about this before different programs have sort of different DNA and you need different kinds of coaches at different kinds of programs. So if you take a a guy like, um, like Dan Mullen, he works perfectly fine at a Florida or even an urban Meyer. He, he, he makes sense at a Florida, just personality wise, just in terms of fit, the kind of program that they have, Steve Spurrier, you know, that's, that's what they are. Florida state is different. There's a different DNA in their program. You you need a guy that fits the program a little bit better. And I just don't think Mark would have been a great fit for, for with Florida state on that side of things. And you know, that that's nothing against Mark as a, as a really good football coach. It's just certain elements of what it takes at a place like Florida state with the DNA of Florida state. I think certain guys are just not as good of fits as, as other guys would be there. And again, I think, I think, the, the ones that I, I just mentioned along with Norvell, I think Norvell is a pretty good fit DNA wise for what Florida state is as a program to make sense there. Uh, you know, actually of the guys that I mentioned, Matt Campbell is a little bit more, you know, he's, he's probably as far away as you can get from the, the DNA at Florida state for a guy that I think could still work there and who could actually sort of reshape some things to make the program fit him in that respect. But I think a guy like Brom would be absolutely the kind of DNA that, that Florida state would have had there. That's all again, speculative from the past. And I think Florida state has the right guy right now. I think Norvell is a really good coach. And I think he, he's shown a, a good track record with hiring and developing outstanding assistant coaches. It's just going to take some time. And, and we've already seen some development on the year where this team is better now than they were at the beginning of the season. And I'm really interested to see whether or not they're able to say go three and three the remainder of the season after UMass. Are they able to do that? If they're able to do that, that shows all the more how well they're developing things in Tallahassee. And I I think they're moving in the right direction slowly, but surely they're, they're getting things turned around. And again, once he gets some talent and he's a guy that can recruit, once he gets a little bit more of his talent on the roster, then you'll start to see a bit more of what what he's able to do with the kind of talent that Florida State's used to having. So we'll go ahead and wrap there. It's been an interesting question and response episode. Uh, I'm still willing to take a few more questions. Anybody who has any additional things you want me to to discuss on the next episode, please send them in. Uh, Or if I've somehow misplaced or forgotten a question, uh, that you've already asked, uh, remind me of that as well. Uh, cause I'm really not going to do a major UMass preview because there's just not a whole lot to preview on that. So I'll be willing to take a few additional questions in the uh, usual Friday episode or Thursday, depending on when I'm able to actually get that recorded until then, this has been the unconquered podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening. The Unconquered Podcast is brought to you by EPR Creations, Luis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, ShenRealestate.com in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Garage Makeovers of Palm Beach in Broward County, and the Unconquered Podcast Shop at unconqueredpodcast.com, which features stickers, magnets, and other seminal gear. Thanks also to those supporters over at Patreon, where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast from supporters. I'm especially grateful to those above the dynasty level. That is Andrew Garrett, Brian Leininger, Jonathan Kennedy, Lee Caswell, Travis Smith, Tyler Kashishki, Vince Calandra, and Bert Bertoldi. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, post us on social media, and tell a friend. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening. I made this.